welcome to the Clerk Commute Podcast. Where we discuss clerkship content, share up-to-date research, work through interesting cases, and gather position advice for your next rotation. Good morning, clerks. Welcome back to another episode of the Clerk Commute. Today, we will be learning about common drugs and anesthesia, which will help you during your anesthesia rotation. It is recommended that you listen to this episode after listening to the Anesthesia 101 episode that was published on August 26, 2021. This episode was edited by Dr. Sena Aflaki, an anesthesiologist at Southlake Regional Health Centre. So we'll break this episode up into sections based on the various types of medications used and the purpose they serve. This will build on the six A's of anesthesia that we learned in Anesthesia 101 episode, which gave our listeners an introduction to the field of anesthesia. Just as a refresher, the six A's are anesthesia, analgesia, amnesia, areflexia, autonomic stability, and anxiolysis. Just to further explain that point, we will divide this episode into various drug classes. We will discuss agents that provide sedation, pain medications, antiemetics, muscle relaxants, emergency drugs, and agents that reverse neuromuscular blockade. Thanks for reminding me of what all those words meant. The first class is the hypnotic medications, or those that help patients with sedation to help induce them as part of a general anesthetic. In the operating room, the most commonly used IV induction agent is propofol. Propofol's mechanism of action is not entirely understood, but has been shown to bind to GABA receptors and may facilitate their effect. A typical dose for induction is between 1 to 2.5 milligrams per kilogram, but children may require higher doses in the range of 2 to 3.5 milligrams per kilogram. Its effects, its effects include cardiac depression, decrease in blood pressure, and respiratory depression. Patients also endorse pain during injection of propofol into the IV, and as such, anesthetics will prime the vein with a local anesthetic, such as lidocaine, 1%, or mix it into the syringe with propofol. If you're, if you're preparing the drugs, ensure you label this appropriately, as propofol is the only white and opaque agent, so it often gets unlabeled. In the same class, ketamine has some unique properties that make it a suitable choice as an induction agent. It acts as an MDMA antagonist and is postulated to work as a dissociative anesthetic agent, which means it renders the patient unable to respond appropriately to sensory and other external stimuli. Ketamine allows for more hemodynamic stability, decreased respiratory depression, and analgesia, so it can be used as an adjunct for pain management. Typical induction doses of ketamine may range from 0.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram. Lastly, we'll discuss one more drug that is not commonly used, but has some slightly different pharmacodynamics, and that is etomidate. It acts through GABA inhibition and produces minimal cardiac and respiratory depression with no inherent analgesic properties. The typical dose used for induction is between 0.2 to 0.6 milligrams per kilogram. Perfect. Now we'll move on to a different class of medications which go hand in hand with the induction agents, which are analgesics or pain medications. Oftentimes in the operating room, anesthetists will use various opioids to provide pain relief and deepen sedation. We will discuss four opioids that are commonly used in the OR, including remifentanil, fentanyl, morphine, and hydromorphone. Overall, in terms of potency, we will always describe opioids in relation to morphine. Hydromorphone is five times more potent than morphine, 
fentanyl is about 100 times more potent and remifentanil is roughly 200 times more potent. Beginning with the shortest acting agent, remifentanil, which has a half-life of 90 seconds and is fully metabolized within eight minutes, is metabolized by plasma esterases in the blood. And so it can be used safely in patients with decreased liver or renal function. Next, fentanyl has a fairly rapid onset of five to seven minutes, but its elimination half-life is four to five hours. So it may still be in the patient's system if used as an infusion. The benefit of fentanyl compared to morphine is that it is, that it is associated with more stable hemodynamics. Finally, hydromorphone, as mentioned previously, is five times more potent than morphine. Of course, when discussing opioids, it's important to talk about opioid antagonists, or in other words, our antidote for opioid overdose. We are talking about naloxone, an opioid antagonist, which will help with reversing the respiratory depressant effects of opioids, but it also reverses the analgesic effects. So it's important to be ready to give short-acting pain medications in the immediate post-operative period if necessary. Our next class of drugs is the neuromuscular blocking agents. And these are very important to provide skeletal muscle relaxation in order to facilitate a smooth tracheal intubation relieve laryngospasm, and improve the operative conditions for the surgical team. There are two main drugs that are used for this purpose, which are sicinylcholine and rocuronium. They differ, they differ mainly via their mechanism of action and by extension, their onset of action. Sicinylcholine is a depolarizing neuromuscular blocking agent. It acts by binding at the neuromuscular junction, which causes depolarization. And thus, the fasciculations that are commonly seen after administration of sesylcholine and prevents repolarization. At the standard intubating dose of one to two milligrams per kilogram, the effects are seen within 45 to six, 60 seconds, and muscle strength is regained within nine to 12 minutes. Some anesthesiologists will choose to give a small, non intubating dose of roconium to prevent the fasciculation seen with sesylcholine. If that method is chosen, the dose of sesamocholine used would be in the higher range of 1.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram. Notably, sesamocholine has certain contraindications, including personal or family history of pseudocholinesterase deficiency, history of malignant, malignant hyperthermia, hyperkalemia, or severe crash injuries, burns, etc., skeletal muscle myopathies, and certain cardiac dysrhythmias. The second agent that is commonly used is rocuronium. As mentioned earlier, rocuronium has a different mechanism of action than As mentioned earlier, rocuronium has a different mechanism in that it is a competitive non-depolarizing agent. As implied, this drug does not cause depolarization of the neuromuscular junction, but rather competitively binds and inhibits the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. The typical intubating dose is 0.6 milligrams per kilogram, and its onset is approximately 80 to 90 seconds and lasts between 35 to 40 minutes. The termination of the effect is based on either passive diffusion away from the receptor, or if the concentration of acetylcholine increases enough to displace the rocuronium molecules off. The displacement effect can be hastened by administering acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, which are termed reversal agents and will be discussed next. Thanks for the excellent transition. So our next class, as you mentioned, are the reversal agents. 
Neostigamine is the most common agent used in most operating rooms. It is a cholinesterase inhibitor, which means it inhibits the enzyme, which is responsible for breaking down acetylcholine. This leads to increased concentrations of the acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction, and the acetylcholine molecules will outcompete competitive non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking agents, such as rocuronium. When administering a cholinesterase inhibitor, it is important to co-administer an anticholinergic agent to counterbalance those effects. The main cholinergic side effect we are concerned about is bradycardia. So these agents tend to increase heart rate and also help to decrease bronchial secretions. The two commonly used agents are atropine and glycopyrrolate. They differ mainly in the size of their molecular structure. Glycopyrrolate is a large molecule which cannot diffuse across the blood-brain barrier and can cause unwanted cognitive effects. Atropine is the other agent and it has a smaller molecular size which can cross the blood-brain barrier. Thus, it is often reserved for use in pediatric patients where the cognitive effects are less of a concern. That was a great summary of the neuromuscular blocking agents and their counterparts, the reversal agents. Next, we are discussing antiemetic agents as post-operative nausea and vomiting is one of the most common side effects experienced by patients after a general anesthetic. Before discussing the agents used, it is important to understand the patient and surgical factors that increase one's risk of post-operative nausea and vomiting. A useful scoring tool is known as the Apfel score, which stratifies patients based on certain characteristics. These factors which increase risk include female sex, non-smoker, a history of post-operative nausea or vomiting or motion sickness, and the use of post-operative opioids. All patients have a baseline risk of 10%, and with each point on the APFEL score, a patient's risk increases to 20, 40, 60, and 80% roughly. There are also certain surgical procedures which are typically associated with higher rates of post-operative nausea and vomiting. These procedures include gynecological, intraperitoneal, laparoscopic, ENT, and eye surgery in children. Now that we know who is at risk, we should discuss what we are going to do about it in the perioperative period. There are many agents that can be used as antiemetics, but oftentimes the most patients receive either dexamethasone, four to eight milligrams IV, or odansterone, four milligrams IV, to cover their baseline risk of postoperative nausea and vomiting. Dexamethasone is usually given shortly after induction, while odansterone is typically administered near the end of the procedure. In addition to those agents, one can use a multimodal approach by utilizing agents such as haloperidol, dimine hydrate or gravol, or metoclopramide. Now we've gone to the last class of medications that we are going to discuss during this episode. With that in mind, pay close attention as these are the emergency drugs or the agents that will have major effects on hemodynamics so it is very important to understand their mechanism of action and when to use each. There are five main agents that we want to highlight, but of course, there's a plethora of other medications that could be used to affect hemodynamics. The first is phenylephrine, which is an alpha agonist and mainly acts on alpha-1 receptors. This leads to vas vasoconstriction and is used to increase blood pressure. With that increase in blood pressure, there is often a reflex bradycardia that is not due to the direct effects of the medication. Our next agent is ephedrine, which acts to release endogenous catecholamines and therefore both directly and indirectly acts on alpha and beta receptors. 
the response seen from this agent is typically an increase in heart rate and blood pressure, which ultimately increases cardiac output. These two agents, phenylephrine and ephedrine, are often talked about and staff anesthesiologists commonly ask medical students about the difference in their mechanism. So we would recommend reviewing some of the specific details after this episode. In short, phenylephrine is used to inc increase blood pressure, while ephedrine is used to simultaneously increase heart rate and blood pressure. Totally agreed. The next agent is norepinephrine, which is an adrenergic agonist and mainly acts on alpha-1 and beta-1 receptors. Its effects are mainly to increase systemic vascular resistance and can be used to increase blood pressure in patients with refractory vasodilatory shock. Similarly, epinephrine is a direct agonist of alpha-1, alpha-2, beta-1, and beta-2 receptors, so it really covers all the bases. It increases heart rate, contractility, and leads to vasoconstriction. The beta-2 effects also allow for bronchial smooth muscle relaxation. Finally, dopamine is interesting as its effects are dose-related. At low doses, it has mostly dopaminergic activity, but at medium doses, it seems to increase beta-1 activity. And high doses, it has more alpha-1 effects, which we now know leads to vasoconstriction. That was a very quick summary of some important autonomic agents that are used. But we would definitely recommend spending some time reviewing your notes from earlier years in medical school to get a good grasp of sympathetic and parasympathetic physiology. The mechanism of the agents discussed here will make a lot more sense after reviewing that. In summary, we discussed various agents that are used in the administration of a typical general anesthetic. The agents fell into one of six classes, including induction agents, analgesics, mainly opioids, neuromuscular blocking agents, reversal agents, antiemetics, and emergency drugs, which are used to stabilize hemodynamic effects of surgery. We really talked about a lot in this episode, and we recommend you use your school's materials to review the medications we discussed here in greater detail. We hope this was helpful to you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Clerk Commute Podcast. Catch you on your next commute.